0: You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now, here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back, friends. Today is our last episode with Judge Amber, and she shares about the tools the drug court participants gain in their program while sharing powerful statistics on drug wellness court outcomes and powerful stories of recovery. Let's continue to learn from Amber. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. So I can only imagine you have some of the most heartwarming and heartbreaking scenarios in front of you on a regular basis.
1: I I love what I do. It's extremely powerful. It's also like what you said, it's extremely difficult to be the heavy. When I'm sentencing someone I don't know at all, I just know a little bit about their background. This is the crime that they did. These are the sentencing guidelines. Here's how I'm gonna sentence them versus someone who I know their wife's name. I know how old their children are. I know where they work. I know what their struggles are. A lot of times people get to the point where they share really powerful trauma with me. And then if I have to be the heavy, it's a lot harder. But it's so important, though, that there's that accountability piece to this. I think this sounds kind of cheesy, but I believe that drug court for me is a lot like parenting. And I had a person tell me one time that discipline is every... Bit as important as affection in loving a child. And I kind of have that same concept in drug court. I want to praise you and I want to build a connection with you, but I also, I'm going to hold you accountable because otherwise this process doesn't work. And as difficult as it is, that's what I remind myself that I I need to do that. It's
0: ironic that you took it back to parenting because that's exactly what flashed in my head when you were describing it that if you didn't have that accountability piece, the disease would be getting off scot free just like an enabling parent. Is it devastating? Of course, you want everyone who comes through your court to do well, I'm sure. Just like everyone who I served in a treatment setting, all my family clients, I want the best story outcome possible. I don't have that power. Nobody does. And it is devastating when
1: the story is different. And it is with this life-threatening illness, very real risk. Yeah, and right now, I just had this conversation this morning in Veterans Corp. You know, I asked him, what are you most proud of? And he was like, I'm clean. And he said, you know, the 23rd, it'll be a year. That's that's a big deal. And he smokes, smokes crack. And they lace crack with fentanyl now. Everything's laced with fentanyl. You smoke marijuana even. It's Russian roulette. And that's the game. It's it's a different game right now today, this year. And it, it gets more and more dangerous, which is another thing that really keeps me motivated. Since I've been on... A, drug court judge, we've had two ODs where I've lost a participant. And that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can imagine this is extremely devastating. Actually pretty remarkable, Amber. I was wondering the numbers in my head. I would have expected them to be higher. That says a lot for your program. Yeah. So right now we have 86 participants. I don't see all 86 every week. Depends on where they are in the program, but we've had 626 graduates from 1998 until last year. Our recidivism rate is about 23%. So only 23% of those people reoffend. Roughly, what's recidivism rate for someone who does not go through drug court? Oh my gosh. 70, 60%? Yeah, maybe even higher, especially if it's someone um, heroin or crack or even meth, people just don't get better without significant amounts of treatment. And one of the things that I kind of brag about the treatment court, I said, it's the best treatment possible that you can get because it's basically a two-year intensive program with an entire team devoted to you. So we have three probation officers and 86 participants, and that's their whole job is to focus on those. The case manager, that is their whole job is to focus on those people and their recovery you know, and the accountability of having to come and stand before a judge every week and potentially be sanctioned or that accountability piece. It's just, I don't know, it just works really well.
0: I love learning new things. I love having perspectives given to me that shift my thinking, because obviously this is not a, a world with which I have much experience.
1: I didn't really talk about the fact that in drug court, we don't just do treatment. We require people to work. They have to get their GED if they don't have their diploma. If they're not able to get their GED, because we have some people that are going to come in and in two years' time, that's not an achievable goal. We set educational goals for them or vocational goals. You know, we're looking at the whole picture too. And that goes to that pride piece, having a sense of pride and worth. You know, I have a job, I'm paying my bills. I hear that all the time when I ask people what they're proud of. I'm taking care of myself. I'm paying my bills. I have a stable job. I mean, that's something that a lot of us take for granted, but to, to these people in recovery, it is, is everything. The other piece I think of with that is you're setting them
0: up to have skill sets, knowledge bases, and experience that helps them alongside recovery, which is huge. Just being sober is enough of a challenge for most people, but it's also rewarding. We have to know how to apply for a job. We have to know how to have the skill sets to get jobs. We have to write resumes, you know, so all of that. To help people who may not have those skills because they've been active in their disease
1: most of their adult life, and our case managers do all that. You know, okay, we're going to get you set up with the tutor for the GED. We're going to set you up with some vocational training, or if somebody's trying to get their birth certificate, because they also have to come in and do blood work, and we make sure that that they're healthy. We found that people come in and they get their blood work, and they find out. You know, we're talking about long-term IV drug users, and so we make sure that that piece is okay as well. I forgot about all these other things that we do because we are really focused on drug and alcohol and mental health treatment, but there's, you know, there's a lot more to the program. It's much more well-rounded. It
0: sounds like a whole person. And the other thing with that is like you described, they get to come into a program where they have a team that will assist them with all of those
1: needs. Right. Where else in the world do you get that? You don't, but assist being the key word. We're not doing all these things for them. We're like, all right, this is what you need to do and how you need to do it. And if they don't do it for themselves, then they don't do it. But guiding them. And ultimately, we guide them a lot in the beginning. And we back away a little bit as they progress. And, you know, it's interesting. We have graduation in two weeks. And some people, I say, well, how does it feel to graduate? You're getting ready to graduate. And some people are like, it's awesome. I can't wait for this to be over, you know, because it's it's a lot. And I have probably more people than not say, I'm a little... I'm afraid. I say, well, that tells me that you take your recovery very seriously and that you understand the resources that you have. I said, but and we always talk about this. We're not going anywhere. Two years from now, you have a problem. You need to contact somebody here. Call us. We'll be here. We'll help you get whatever you need. But what we're really hoping is that toolbox that we help you put together, that you're going to take that with you in your hand out into the world And you have all those tools there at your disposal to use that you didn't have when you started this program. It's beautiful.
0: It mirrors rehabilitation when I believe it works to the best that it can possibly work, but almost even more because of the the whole person surround of resources. The stepping down, the pulling away from the more intensive into the less intensive, but creating a toolbox for them to go out and utilize in their home, in their world is beautiful. It's a beautiful program. Yes. Yep. Do you have people come back and share their ongoing journeys? I mean, I think that would give people also out there listening a lot of hope to hear, you know, yes, there's sadly been two losses, which is still remarkably low. on the flip side of that, what are some of your favorite recovery stories of people who've gone through the system, the program, and now where they're at?
1: Well, a lot of times at graduation, we have former graduates come back and speak. So they speak at graduation, and which is always incredibly powerful, especially people who have a success story. Like, for example, we have a gentleman who started a gym, like a health food business that he's created. So A lot of our participants, they go into recovery and they get their um, certified recovery specialist certificate, and then they work in recovery, helping other people get to where, which is beautiful. We had one graduate and she was DUI court. She wasn't one of my graduates, but she came to graduation in a graduation gown and cap because she was so excited to graduate and she started her own cupcake business. It's amazing. Her cupcakes are amazing. And I buy them now for any event that I have. And then all of our treatment court graduations, we serve her cupcakes to everybody. I went with two of my probation officers to, there was a recovery house and they were having an open mic night. And one of our graduates came to treatment court the week before. To say, hey, we're having this open mic night. We'd love for you to come if you have a talent to share, if you just want to sit and hang out. And he performed. So he was a graduate. He plays a guitar. And then we had another graduate who was going to do a rap. He was supposed to rap at graduation and he chickened out. So I was like, I'm going because I want to see him rap. And he did. And I got to watch them both perform. It was just really special to know that they're both connected to each other and still connected to their recovery network and helping other people. That's what I love to see. We do require that participants, they have to attend an alumni panel. So what happens is we get a couple of alumni to come back and sit in a room with people who are in the program and share their stories, ask questions, answer questions, things of that nature. And that's a requirement. So we get people to come back. But every now and then we have graduates who come back. We had one who came back a couple weeks ago and he just wanted to sit, share his story with everybody and just basically profess his his love to the team, you know, thank you so much. And there's few things more powerful because so many of them say, if I can do this, anybody can do this. If you would have seen me at the beginning of this program and where I am now, you would know that it works. (laughs) This
0: podcast is made possible by listeners like you. This podcast, Embrace Family Recovery, has been a joy to make. I have been introduced to some of the most interesting people, which I feel have given such a variety of experiences around the disease of addiction. I hope you've enjoyed them too. Please share the podcast with anyone you think it could benefit. Spread the word, tell people about it, post about it, anything you can do to help get more people to hear the hope in the messages of people in recovery as family members. Another thing that would be really helpful is if you could go to Apple Podcast and write a review. The algorithms matter. Reviews matter. Ratings matter. So if you can go on Apple Podcasts and rate and review what you found valuable in the podcast, Embrace Family Recovery, it would help this grow and reach more people.
1: You're listening to the
0: Embrace Family Recovery. Family Recovery Podcast. Can you relate to what you're hearing?
1: Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show.
0: How prevalent is treatment court in the United States?
1: Gosh, that I honestly don't know. Um, Not prevalent enough. (laughs) I mean, I definitely see and I believe that criminal justice is shifting more towards treatment because we're seeing, again, prison populations are decreasing because I think a lot of criminal justice systems are recognizing throwing people in jail doesn't work, especially with someone who's struggling with addiction. Sometimes they come out worse than they went in. I don't know the statistics, but I see, especially in Pennsylvania, I'm seeing that shift away from incarceration towards treatment. And it's critical. It's the it's the criminal justice system of the future. Now, that doesn't mean we we do away with our traditional system. I mean, we have to have that. But being a, a drug court judge makes me a better regular judge because when people come in, I'm just so much more aware of other issues that, that I can help maybe point people in the right direction you know, in the process so that they can get the treatment that they need. So a lot of times it, if you go and you, you get treatment and you kind of get help, it, the district attorneys are willing to give you a better offer, reduce your charges, because that's what we all want is just people who aren't going to come back into the system. And the best chance we have at that is getting them treatment.
0: What is the resistance? Not with participants in your treatment court, but in the world, in the community. I mean, are people on board? Do people see the benefit or is there still a need for education and understanding out there of the differences?
1: Oh, no, there's there's an incredible need for education. A lot of people refer to treatment courts as hug-a-thug Like all you do is clap, clap clapping court, you know, and it's absurd. You know, there's a lot of people who think that. And um, what I say to those people is come watch my court, come sit in the court, spend an entire day in drug court, and then tell me you feel the same way you do right now. It's a matter of ignorance, really, of just not knowing how these things really work. It's kind of been other judges, even in our court, not really buying it back in the day. In fact, the kind of the The pioneer drug court judge in in our county was not a believer. He ended up being not only a huge convert, but he ended up being one of those kind of like a legend in the state um, with respect to his impact on the drug wellness court community statewide. And, you know, I say hug a thug and that it sounds terrible, but that's the concept behind it is just we're not going to clap and and hug these criminals and they're going to stop doing what they're doing. And that just shows a true ignorance of everything that we're trying to do in in the wellness courts. To answer your question, there needs to be a lot more education. The shift is slow, but I know that's a goal that we have for our court is just more education and exposure, you know, exposing people to what we do and introducing them to the treatment courts and how they're helping and benefiting the community.
0: I would think a way to do that, if it doesn't go against the participants' um, anonymity, would be to have some of your alum share the power of what it was for them and what helped them and how it was different than being locked up.
1: Well, typically our court is private, especially what we do in staffing, what we discuss in staffing. I mean, because there's a lot of waivers that are signed for us to discuss the information that we do. But as far as what happens in court, We don't open up that court to the general public, but once someone graduates, they can say whatever they want to say about whatever they want to discuss. And they do. And they, you know, typically if you've graduated from treatment court, it's two years of blood, sweat, and tears, and you've made a considerable change in your life. And most of the people that graduate, they want to share that. They want other people to experience that. I bet. And they were probably the
0: number one person to help the community at large understand better the positive outcomes. What would you like to see different? What would you like to see improved or changed in your two and a half years of being in the treatment court?
1: And I remember when I was initially exposed to treatment court, they talked a lot about dental care. Like dental care? Like, don't we have bigger fish to fry? And I was I didn't quite understand it like I do now. And now We have some participants, obviously, who smoke methamphetamine, smoke crack, they've destroyed their teeth. And I was like, if I could have like free dental care to get all of these people and their teeth fixed, because, you know, your smile and your confidence, it can't be um, undervalued. I had a participant who she got her new dentures last week. And oh my gosh, new woman smiling. And just, it's amazing the impact those teeth had on her entire being. And it sounds silly and unrelated, but it, it, something like that. I would love to be able to have quicker access to, to healthcare. If I had a magic wand, I would have limitless resources, especially when time is of the essence and someone's in critical need of a bed. And there are none. I wish I could improve the speed in which people receive treatment. One of the things that I think that we could Educate the public about, from a drug court perspective, is medically assisted treatment. A lot of people at the beginning of drug court they didn't believe in it, and you know obviously since then we've seen that Suboxone really helps stabilize people. Vivitrol really helps people with problems with alcohol, with their urges, and it helps to stabilize people. And it's it's a critical component of treatment courts at this point. A lot of people don't understand that. I, I would definitely like to to improve the criminal perception of drug court to get more participants to trust the process.
0: You're giving great ideas. One of the things I want to circle back to is the teeth.
1: Yes. Okay.
0: You know, how you said in the beginning it was like, "Don't oh, we have bigger fish to fry?" And yet now it's so it's so fundamental. That to me speaks to your willingness to continue to grow and learn as a human being and. I can say when I walked into Hazel and Betty Ford, when I first got into their training program, I had a very different perception of this disease, of people who had the disease, of what were the issues they faced, where they came from. You know, I had a lot of stereotypes and it actually made me quite emotional to hear you talk about, I wish we could have that for people because you're right. Like you can be doing everything right and healing and doing all those responsibilities. As soon as you smile, there's an assumption and there's a almost a shame connection. Like I can't erase that part of my past because it comes out front and center. And so you're saying, look at the work they're doing. Can we match that physical aspect of recovery along with all of the emotional educational career advances that they're making as a result of recovery. Can we bring that along with it? Yes. That was a much more eloquent
1: way of saying that.
0: (laughs) No, not at all. What you said really touched my heart because my God, if we as human beings can't be more open to understand one another and see the burdens that the disease puts on people on all different aspects of their life None of which was chosen. You know, I'm sure you could do this with every one of the participants in your treatment court. Did you ever think you'd be sitting here? Right. No one would say yes. Even if they saw it in their family and they swore they would never be like them, the disease doesn't discriminate. Right. I always go back to what a former supervisor said to me that I really hold on to. Who in our world has not auditioned for the part of addict? Right. Only people out there are someone who has never touched a narcotic, nicotine, alcohol. Let's not even look at behavioral addictions. And there, by the grace of whatever higher power we believe in, some of us were spared. Yes. And some of us weren't. And that is no fault of either side of that. That is purely a fortune on one side to not have the disease and on the other to have the disease. Absolutely. And I don't think we get that in our society. I think a lot of times it's a very much a assumption of bad behavior, bad parenting, poor choices led down this path. And that is the biggest lie and false information out there around addiction.
1: Yeah. And, you know, in all walks of life that we see, it's not that stereotype that, I think that is that perception is changing a little bit with the opioid epidemic.
0: No, I agree. I agree on the level of society understanding it differently. I do think innately people still find blame. blame parents blame the system, blame the courts, blame the and we have to look at it as a no fault disease. And how do we come around someone and give them the resources to climb their way into the life they deserve versus being tortured and driven by a disease that doesn't give a crap about them? or anyone.
1: Absolutely. And well the unfortunate thing about the wellness courts is you have to commit some pretty serious crimes to get into them. I mean, I wish you know could find a way to have this level of treatment for everyone involved.
0: I wonder Amber if that would work as as effectively because there has to be a level of surrender to do the work required to get out of this. And I wonder if somebody who hadn't had more serious consequences that led them to you would have any skin in the game, because they think, eh.
1: No, you're exactly right. They wouldn't have the skin in the game. They wouldn't have the desperation. In fact, we see that interestingly enough, although this is somewhat unrelated to to what we were just talking about, sometimes we get dealers, people who deal drugs who aren't really addicts or people who are suffering with substance abuse, and they come into the court playing the game, pretending they're they're suffering from addiction in order to avoid jail. And they never progress in the program. They just don't because they don't have the need, but they they weed themselves out pretty quickly. And it's really interesting to have both of those components, someone who really suffers from substance use and someone who's really desperate to not go back to jail. And that's that's the power of the program, really, ultimately, the the driving force.
0: Well, in my way of thinking about those who have come in pretending they have a substance use disorder, I looked at this and went, this is way too much work and I don't want to deal with my emotions on any level. And I thought this was going to be the easier, softer way to deal with my criminal stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, people think it's a check the box program. I come in, I do what they want me to do and I graduate. And it is not. I ask people who are successful in the program, What advice do you give to those who are struggling? And a lot of them say the same thing. I came in this program thinking I could do the program the way I wanted to do it. And as soon as I figured out that I just need to surrender to the program, that is when things change for me. And I'm sure you can imagine people come in and want to do the program the way they want to do it. And uh, it just doesn't work that way. And the sooner they figure that out, the smoother their time is in the drug wellness court.
0: And then add in the caveat that you mentioned so well, when family are unwittingly undermining the process of treatment or the process of treatment court, that is such a detriment to the whole family.
1: It absolutely is. And I feel sorry when I see that. I feel sorry for those participants. But I like the way that you framed it, though. And I think I'm going to use that going forward. I'm going to use that. And I'm going to say, this is your chance to sit back and relax and let me be the heavy.
0: You know why they can't? Because their drug of no choice is sitting in that courtroom and they've done everything around that human being that that human being has done around a substance. And so to give that up means I have to look at my own fears, pain, sadness, grief, anger. Oh, I can't do that. So let me stay focused on them.
1: Yes, that's pretty deep.
0: <laughs> I think that is exactly why I got into the business I got into is to bring those truths to the table so they're not so hard on themselves or the person with the disease and they allow themselves the support, knowing that if they could do that switch, they offer so much more to the person they love and want well than if they stay in that same role the disease has taught them to be in.
1: Absolutely. And hopefully this interview will help people realize that from the from my perspective.
0: No doubt. And again, I'm reiterating, I've said it twice now, I'll say it again family members do it out of love and the best of intention this is not blaming them but i do believe the disease of addiction comes into a family and changes every family member's way of navigating the world and until we identify that we deserve help for that change that's happened in us that's no longer helping us or serving our family the change in pattern won't happen
1: right yeah i mean i, I said to my own parents i mean my parents are wonderful loving humans and with no concept of their, their um, actions and the impact that they had on almost killing my brother or, or allowing him to kill himself. But he is doing well, and I, I couldn't be grateful. Well, and you had
0: a part to play in that. You had the courage back to interventions, which are very valuable. And I think there's interventions legally. There's interventions just in a family conversation. There's interventions medically, professionally. But I don't think the person who's receiving the organized intervention when they happen understands the terror of the families putting that together.
1: Yeah. I was able to compartmentalize it. That's how I dealt with it to say, okay, obviously I don't want my brother to die. And I have to be a hard ass. Like, this is the only way this is going to (laughs) happen. I have to do that in drug court too. You know, these people that I care about, it's like, all of a sudden I'm, I'm going to put you in jail and I'm going to separate you from your family and you're going to lose your job and all these things. I'm going to hold you accountable. It's hard. It's, it's hard for me, but, but with my brother, again, I go back to that discipline and affection being equal parts of loving someone. And that's honestly the bottom line. And if if there's anything I could say to your listeners who might be struggling with that concept, that's what, you know, I'm a visual person. I see that in my mind, equal parts. And not always equal parts. I think it depends on the recipient of the love. You know, sometimes you need a little more of one or the other, but they're definitely both equally as important.
0: And I think in language I would use around that, because I'm a visual person too, is the two thoughts I have in reaction to that are learning to separate the person from their disease, huge, allowing the love for the person to be there while the boundaries against the disease to protect ourselves from it and not enable it. So it's separating those two out, showing the discipline in the boundaries and the love and the continuing to have a relationship with the person you adore. A lot of people find detaching with love such a tough concept because it's all black and white and it isn't. It's caring without fixing. It's saying, I'm going to love you and allow you the dignity to fix yourself. So I'm going to not be the fixer, but that's really hard to do when that's all you've been known to do in the situation.
1: But also when you step back and you let a child do something for themselves, they're going to value the result of what they've done so much more than if you did it for them. And it's the same concept in recovery. And first of all, you can't do it for them and trying isn't helping them, but once they do it for themselves, it's just so much more meaningful.
0: Well, and I'm sure you see it much more visibly than any other person because you have a level of separation, even though you're very invested in the participants. You probably watch them stand taller, head higher, back, shoulder back, you know, like you must see that physical change of feeling good in their skin again.
1: Absolutely. It is the most powerful thing. I mean, I can't imagine anything more powerful in what I do than getting to see that. And it's amazing. And to know that you've been caveat or a carrier
0: or a implementer of offering it, but you've given them the dignity of doing it for themselves. Yes, there's a consequence if they don't, but that's that boundary piece. And so you create these resources. You have this amazing team who are willing to be mentor, a guide, a facilitator, but they have to do the work, which allows them to get that stance.
1: This is completely off topic, but I wanted to share some statistics that my uh, coordinator gave me because I think that they're they're really interesting to show some of the results of the treatment work. So this is for 2021. I'm just going to give you the stat. We had 25 graduates in that year. 92% of them were employed at the time of graduation. 96% had their high school diploma or a GED after the time of graduation. Um, average clean time in the program was 10 and a half months. Uh, jail days saved by participating in the drug wellness court was 9165 So basically, the time they would have spent in jail, which is the equivalent, and this is more for the politicians out there, the savings of $886,713. And it, the cost to participate in drug wellness court for those 25 people was $412,500 for a total cost savings of $474,213 overall, which again, not really the purpose of Drug Wellness Corps, but when you're talking about funding and support from a political aspect, it's important to show that fiscally it benefits a community as well as all the other things we've talked about.
0: That's really powerful. I'm glad you got a chance to put those in. And and I also would say to that, as a taxpayer.
1: Right to hear that. Yeah. And, you know, so not only are people completely changing their lives and getting back to who they were, we're saving taxpayer dollars. <laughs> but, you know, to keep this going forward and to convince other people, this is the direction we need to be going in for a whole plethora of reasons. Some people, they're going to respond to those statistics more than they would the um, huggy, feely, fuzzy side of it.
0: Wow. I'm really glad that you had those to offer. And I think that's really important. And I didn't know it was even during COVID, right? You think about the time that 21 was, that was 21. Yeah. 21. Because so many people struggle to maintain sobriety in the times of COVID, the isolation, the going to Zoom the not having the resources and, or utilizing them.
1: Yeah. And I think you and I spoke about this before, but I was terrified for my treatment court participants during COVID. And one of the things that we did was figured out really quickly how to have Zoom court. I know it's not the same, but I could look at everybody's faces every week from my dining room table, even though I was at home and I could still participate. And I mailed incentives from my home. I mailed cards. I mailed gifts to participants who were doing well and got everybody set up with Zoom AA meetings, NA meetings. We did everything that we possibly could do to keep those people from being any more isolated than they already were. I'm proud of myself. I really kind of took the ball and ran with it with the Zoom because you know we had the regular court it was like months before we had things figured out. But I was like, I got to do something now. And of course, I had a couple of weeks to sit around and do Zoom tutorials and figure it out. But then I had an amazing team, too, who were able to make sure everyone had cell phones or some kind of computer that they could participate and. I think it was three weeks from the shutdown, we had a whole Zoom port set up where I could see everybody's face, at least on the computer. So I thought that was really cool that we were able to do
0: that. I did want to say one thing that you you talked about um, the incentives and the games and, the, and kind of being cheesy, but cool. You know what came to mind for me there, and I'd be curious your input on this, was one of the things that the disease of addiction robs from people is uh, a lot of things you know, sense of worth and value, but also joy and playfulness. And any of them started probably, I shouldn't assume this, but you can clarify. They started their um, exposure to chemicals, some of them in, in Euro, uh, some of them as very young people. So possibly didn't have those childhood playful Experiences. So there's a piece of me that thinks how absolutely amazing that that's part of your program. That not only do you do the serious work and you offer the resources to do emotional heavy lifting and gaining the skills with your GED and job searching and so forth, but you also give them some chances to be kids and playful and joyful. That's kind of well rounded, amazing.
1: Yeah, we um, have this wheel that we spin, and we actually just implemented it for the first time in Veterans Court. Now I'm in Veterans Court. I was like, we gotta, we gotta do the wheel. And, um, you know, you have these grown men, you know, um, in particular, well, the women too, but and if they haven't gotten a chance to spin it, those are the ones that are like, I have been waiting six months to spin this wheel because of, for whatever reason, like we were spinning the wheel and then we went to zoom and then we came back and we had a participant yesterday, one of our females, and she was smoking marijuana. So you smoke marijuana, you're going to test positive for that long after you stopped smoking it. Finally, her levels started coming down. She Finally, had a clean week, and she got to spin that wheel, and it was like you know, and then we're all clapping and cheering and being silly. I think it's an incredibly powerful incentive. I play video sometimes. We have a, a one of our participants who's he likes to dance, and so his kids started recording his dancing and set it to music and put him on TikTok, and then they teased him and tricked him, and they t- they they were I think it was Home Depot. They were there, and they asked somebody there to to be like, oh my gosh. I totally recognize you from TikTok to convince him he was a TikTok star. So he told this story. We were all laughing hysterically. And then he emailed us all these, these videos and we, we showed them and it was, oh my gosh, we were, it was just, it was fun. But, but also to illustrate one of the things we try to talk about is you can have fun sober.
0: Yes. And the other thing that I think is so beautiful in that story of the children videoing, this disease destroys trust and security. And those children are seeing their father come back to them, maybe even for the first time. And they're getting to play and they're getting to trust and they're getting to enjoy uh, some of those things that were taken from them by the active disease.
1: Absolutely. I don't know. It's kind of hard because sometimes I want to be playful, but then I also want, I have to balance that with this is still serious. So I don't know. I, I struggle with that. Some treatment court judges don't wear a robe. And and I I keep mine on because I still feel like I need that separation, that authority. You know, you share about your brother and I will wear my judge robe, right? Like
0: everybody has a piece. There might be others who never share anything about their personal story.
1: My prosecutor will tell you that I overshare, but, you know, that's who I am. <laughs> that's, that's not going to change going forward. And she says it in a loving way that because to me, that's important to connect with my participants, that they know about me too, and that I'm human. We're all flawed human, perfectly
0: imperfect, doing the best we can, and you're in a different position than them, but they're by the grace of your higher power. Your brother has this disease, you could have easily had it. And so I think that says something to show a little bit of your story with them to realize that, yes, you have the esteem and the authority and the accomplishments you have, and you can connect.
1: Yes. That's what I try to
0: do. I hope you walked away from these three episodes with Judge Amber understanding more about the Drug Wellness Court programs and their benefits. I am so appreciative of Amber and her team for the outstanding work and service to the participants of Drug Wellness Court. I also want to thank Judge Amber for taking time from her busy schedule to be a part of this podcast. I want to thank my guests for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, EmbraceFamilyRecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time. Please take care of you.